welcome back this week for another episode of Wrestling with Theology. This week being the first week of the month, we are in the Apostolic Fathers, still reading through First Clement. This week we'll look at chapters 20 through 25. By his direction the heavens are moved. They obey him in peace. Day and night have been put in place by him on a course that they accomplish. No longer a hindrance to each other. Sun and moon, dancing stars according to his order and harmony within all the boundaries that have been assigned to them. The earth bears fruit according to his will in its own times. For every man and animal, everything that lives on it, he causes to raise food, not standing apart nor altering what has been taught by him. Of the unfathomable depths and unhonorable statutes of the nether regions to those held together by his teachings. The basin of the boundless sea, according to its artisan, surrounded in its gathering, does not pass its boundaries, but it did just as he commanded it. For he said, So far you will come, and your waves within you will be broken. Oceans which are impassable to men and the worlds with it are directed by these ordinances of the Master. The seasons of spring and summer and autumn and winter give way in peace in succession to each other. The winds of their quarters, according to their own seasons, fulfill their ministry without disturbance. Ever-flowing fountains were created for enjoyment and health, without fail giving their breast for men's lives. The smallest of living things come together in concord and make peace. All these things the great demiurge and master of everything ordered in peace and concord, doing good unto all things, but beyond our measure, who have taken refuge in his house according to our Lord Jesus Christ, in whom be the glory and the majesty forever and ever. Amen. In this chapter, the Roman presbyters move on to God's glory demonstrated in creation. Everything in creation does its created duty to its creator without being broken. The waters, according to God's creation, do not move beyond their appointed boundaries. Genesis 1.9, Job 38.11 God has called the Demiurge in this chapter. God's title of Demiurge is often misunderstood in Christian literature. Very often, the title is understood in its most prominent context, the Gnostic scriptures. Gnostics believe that the Demiurge created the material world. According to the Gnostic scriptures, the goal of life is to shed the material world in favor of the spiritual realm. Therefore, the Gnostics declared that the body was nothing, but the soul was everything. That death was the soul's release from the Demiurge's bodily prison. To the Gnostics, the Demiurge was a demigod subordinate to the true God. But the triune God is spoken of as Demiurge. Demiurge simply means builder, architect, or creator. And the triune God is the builder. Hebrews 3, 3 and 4, and 11, verse 10. The architect, Hebrews 11, verse 10, in the NIV. And creator, Genesis 1, 1, Ecclesiastes 12, 1, Isaiah 40, 28, 43.15, Romans 1.25, Colossians 3.10, and 1 Peter 4.19. However, the title is only used for God in Hebrews 11.10. The most ancient and strictest use of Demiurge is for a master craftsman. In this sense, the Demiurge creates something new out of pre-existing material. This brings in many differences in the interpretation of the biblical creation narrative. Some view God's entire creative work simply in the first two verses of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. From these verses, they suggest that God created all the material necessary for the universe in an instant, 
and then fashioned it into the universe over the course of the six days of creation. This view is in keeping with the strict understanding of Demiurge. However, the Septuagint did not use Demiurge in reference to God as creator, so that the layperson would not think that God only formed or fashioned the universe from pre-existing matter. God created it from nothing. And while it does give the opportunity for confusion, Demiurge is an acceptable title for God in its limits. We move on to chapter 21. See, beloved, none of all his good works will be in our judgment if we walk worthily of him and do good and well-pleasing things before him with concord. For he says thus, The Lord's Spirit is a lamp searching the closets of the belly. We see how near he is and that nothing escapes him of our thoughts or our reasonings which we make. Therefore righteousness will not desert us from his will. Rather, let us strike against foolish and senseless men, those who exalt themselves instead of God and boast in the joyfulness of their words. Let us reverence the Lord Jesus Christ, our instructor in the fear of God, who gave his blood for our sake. Let us guide our women for the good. Let us make manifest the lovely disposition of the purity of their tongues through silence, their love not according to fascistness, but to all who fear God piously let them be treated equal. Let our children be made partakers of instruction in Christ. Let them learn how lowliness of mind prevails with God, how pure love is powerful before God, how the fear of Him is good and great and saves everyone who walks in purity therein with holiness. For He is the searcher of the inner thoughts and the inner desires. His breath is in us, and when He desires, He will take it away. Following the example of the rest of the creation, the Roman presbyters encouraged the Corinthians to walk worthy of God as the crown of His creation. St. Paul wrote to the Philippians, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Philippians 1.27 The Holy Spirit is a lamp to lighten Christians to believe God's word. Proverbs 20.27 In this worthiness of God, Christians should be encouraged to strike out against foolish and senseless men. The word translated senseless is predominantly used to describe people who are both intellectually and ethically foolish or irrational. It literally means being without a mind. They not only think in foolish and senseless ways, but their actions reveal their foolishness. In the New Testament, the word involves moral judgment as well. Luke 24:25, Galatians 3:1 and 3, and Titus 2:3. In their foolishness, they exalt themselves against God and boast about their own words and thoughts. Such boasting, James says, is done in arrogance. All such boasting is evil, he says in chapter 4, verse 16. These are not to be struck in anger, but in correction. Since they have exalted themselves, they need to be put in their proper place so that God may sit in his proper place. In order to achieve this, there must be reverent preaching, teaching, and guiding in God's word. All of God's creatures need to have this instruction regardless of gender, age, or race. All are to be taught the benefits of lowliness of mind, humility, pure love, and proper fear of God. These teachings show God as the searcher of inner thoughts and desires. From Hebrews 4.12. We move on into chapter 22. But all these things confirm faith in Christ. For also he, through the Holy Spirit, thus calls us, Come, children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is he who desires life, who loves to see good days? He restrains your tongue from evil, and your lips will not speak deceit. Turn aside from evil and do good. 
Seek peace and pursue it. The Lord's eyes are on the righteous and his ears to their petitions. But the Lord's face is against evildoers to destroy their memory off the earth. The righteous cried out and the Lord heard him and he delivered him out of all his troubles. Many are the stripes of the sinner, but those who set their hope on the Lord will be surrounded by mercy. The Roman presbyters quote Psalm 34, 11 through 18 for confirmation of faith in Christ. The godly man desires eternal life. He restrains his tongue and lips from speaking deceit. The godly man seeks peace because he follows the Prince of Peace. He will cry out and God will deliver him and surround him with his mercy. Psalm 32.10 Continuing to roll through, we get to chapter 23, where the Roman presbyters write, Being compassionate and always ready to do good, the Father has compassion on those who fear him, gently and lovingly handing over his graces to those who come near to him in one mind. Therefore let us not be double-minded, nor let our soul indulge in idleness about his immeasurable and glorious gifts. Let this scripture be far from us, which says, Wretched are the double-minded, the doubters in soul, those who say, We have heard these things from our fathers, and behold, we have grown old, and none of these things have happened to us. In foolishness, compare yourselves to a tree. Consider a vine. First it sheds its leaves, then a shoot comes, then a leaf, then a flower, and with these things a sour berry, then a ripe grape. See that in a little time the fruit of the tree maintains mellowness. Truly his will will be completed quickly and unexpectedly, having witnessed together with the scriptures that he will come quickly and not tarry. The Lord, even the Holy One, whom you expect, will come unexpectedly into his temple. The Father shows his compassion to those who believe in him. His graces are poured out upon his children through the Holy Spirit, Titus 3, 6. We are not to doubt, but be certain of his grace and compassion toward us. Doubt has no place in the Christian faith. Those who doubt call God a liar. We heard these things from our fathers, and behold, we have grown old, and none of these things have happened to us. These are the words of the headstrong and arrogant party in Corinth. They had heard Paul's words in his epistles to Corinth and other congregations. They had heard the warnings, but they put them aside until they came true. Paul's words had been so long before. Indications from later in this epistle, especially chapters 44 and 47, show that the presbyters originally appointed by Paul in Corinth had passed away and been replaced by the next generation. These would be the presbyters that have recently been deposed by the headstrong and arrogant. The Roman presbyters continue in Paul's thoughts that Christ would be coming quickly. They warn the headstrong and arrogant in Corinth of their need for repentance before it is too late. The purpose of this letter is not to heap accusations on top of each other. The Roman presbyters are reaching out in brotherly concern to their fellow Christians and presbyters about the sin that they are committing. The Roman presbyters are seeking repentance from the headstrong and arrogant. So they continue in chapter 24. Let us understand, brothers, how the Master will show us continually the resurrection that will be hereafter, the beginning of which he made the Lord Jesus Christ when he raised him from the dead. Let us behold, beloved, the resurrection according to the time it happens. Day and night declare to us the resurrection, the night to sleep, the day to arise, the day departs, the night arrives. Let us receive the fruits. How and in what manner does sowing take place? The sower goes out and casts to the ground each of the seeds, some falling to the dry ground and bear decay. Then out of their decay the master's mighty providence rises from it, and out of one may many increase and bear fruit. The Roman presbyters point the Corinthians to the resurrection on the last day. The resurrection to everlasting life began on Easter morning with Jesus' resurrection from the dead. 
through his resurrection as the beginning, we have the promise of our own resurrection. It will come to fulfillment on the last day. However, the picture of our resurrection is shown to us even in the cycle of night and day. The night comes when we are given to sleep, but the sunrise raises us back up again for another day in God's creation. The Roman presbyters also relate the resurrection to the common experience of farming. Our death is symbolized in the death of the seed for the manifestation of many fruits later. And we conclude this week with chapter 25. This is one of those portions of First Clement that brings a lot of people to questions as we talk about the Arabian fable of the phoenix. Let's look at what the Roman presbyters have to say. Let us behold the wonderful thing that is coming in the regions of the east, that is, in those around Arabia. For there is a bird called the phoenix. It is the only begotten who will begin to live for 500 years. When it is time for its death, it makes its coffin out of frankincense and myrrh and other spices, into which it enters and dies in the fullness of time. But as the flesh rots, a worm is born, which puts forth its wings out of moisture of the dead creature. Then it becomes lusty and takes that coffin, which the bones of its parents is, and these things it carries from the country of Arabia into Egypt, to the place called the City of the Sun. And in the daytime, in the sight of everything, it flies and places them on the altar of the sun and sets forth to return. Therefore, the priest will examine the writings of the times and find that the 500th year has been completed. The phoenix is another picture of the resurrection. Although the phoenix is a mythological creature, it shows the deluded picture of the promise of the resurrection given to our first parents in Eden. In Islam and Egyptian mythology, the phoenix declares God's promise of the resurrection. Being the only begotten shows the uniqueness of the phoenix, as Jesus is also unique. When its life cycle approaches its end, the phoenix gathers together a coffin of frankincense, myrrh, and spices. The parallels to Jesus continue as two of the three gifts of the Magi are listed, Matthew 2, 11 and 12. The phoenix's death and resurrection show it crawling into its own coffin and dying in the fullness of time. Jesus came down as the babe of Bethlehem. He crawled around in the world he had made, which was now nothing more than a coffin. St. Paul writes, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Galatians 4, 4 and 5. Jesus' birth, death, and resurrection were brought about in the fullness of time, so that he might redeem mankind. He redeems mankind through his sacrificial death. But on the last day, when time shall be no more, he will destroy the coffin that this world has become with fire in order to create a new heaven and new earth. Isaiah 65, 17, 2 Peter 3, 7. The Roman presbyters say the 500th year has been completed to remind the Corinthians that we are living in the end times. It is not much longer before Jesus returns and casts the fire on the earth he wished had already been kindled in his earthly ministry. We'll take a stop here for this week. Quite a lot in here, especially the views of the Roman presbyters on the resurrection and the promise that we have in Christ. Not that this world is all there is, but there, there is a better world to come. And that is what we look for at the beginning of Advent, is we look at the end so that we know the promise that the end of time is not the end of us, but that Christ will come back to bring us into everlasting life. 
And it is in that promise that I leave you this week as you wrestle with theology.